Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host here for the next hour on the Talent Talk Radio Show. Ranged a really good lineup of guests here throughout the year, and today is especially true of that. We have some great guests for you to hopefully learn some things from, and uh, we can pick their brains a little bit. So just in case this is the first time uh, you're tuning in, I apologize to those of you who maybe heard me say this a thousand times, but the way we work is we have a wide range of guests here that care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. So the business world, talent has a couple different meanings, and the first is how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve success. Clearly, we see those talented people out there, and we wonder, what is it they're doing that I'm not doing? And that's what we want to figure out here on the show. The second is how talent relates to human resources and how these incredible HR leaders find the best candidates for their own companies. So this show will try to explore those two areas, and there's a lot of mixing and combining and overlapping there as well. And we look to really try to figure out how these talented individuals impact a company's culture. The guests typically are CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, authors, coaches, just running the gamut of business leaders from just about every industry you can think of. I typically have the honor of kind of running into these people at an event or a conference or through LinkedIn or wherever we run into them. And I like to have them on the show here so we can hopefully you know, get some of that inspiring knowledge our way. So I created this forum to hopefully allow you to listen in on our dialogue, learn some practical advice on how, how to cultivate talent, uh, develop leaders and manage culture, and hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. So I want to thank those of you who are tuning in live here every Tuesday. If you have a question for one of our guests, you can submit them uh, via Twitter. You can just tweet your question, just do a little at PeopleG2, enter your question in, and then if you have room, add in that hashtag, Talent Talk. If you're not one of the young kids, uh, the hashtag is the pound sign for the rest of us that grew up with that, So, or the number sign, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But my daughter actually said hashtag. She just called it a hashtag the other day, and I had to inform her that it's actually a pound sign or a number sign in which she said, yeah, hashtag. All right, anyway, so uh, my producer, Michael, try to feed me in those questions here, and we'll work them into the show as time allows. But most of you actually tune in via the podcast on iTunes or through the app on iHeart. We're now uh, syndicated with iHeartRadio. Really appreciate their partnership. And you can subscribe to those feeds and have the show sent to you. Interact with us there. We're just hit 198,000 of you. They're tuning in each week. And we're just waiting for that 200,000 listener mark. Our, I think Paul's going to run the, the halls naked here in celebration of that. Unfortunately, none of you will be there to see it, but it'll happen. We thank those of you who are really taking the time here to listen and uh, be involved with the podcast. And we really appreciate uh, your support, your questions, and uh, just interacting with us here. So let's go ahead and get today's show started. We've kind of swapped up the guests a little bit. We're hoping to have Margie uh, Meacham, uh, the Chief Freedom Officer at uh, Learning to Go LLC. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. 
to on, let's see, at the second half of the show. And then we're going to have uh, Kay Gabble. Gabble done. I'm hoping I'm saying that correctly, but usually I'm not. She's the head of talent acquisition for MD Insider. We're actually going to put her on first here uh, and hopefully we can get Margie into the second half of the show. But, uh, Kay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I uh, appreciate you being our uh, our savior here for the day, uh, being able to flip-flop here at the last minute. But maybe you can tell us all a little bit about yourself and, of course, what you're, you're doing at your company. Oh, great. So I've been recruiting for a long, long time. Fell into it. Uh, I had my own startup back in the days before dot-com was dot-com. And we, put, we were putting retail and entertainment districts online. Uh, we sold the company to AOL. When they started to get big, they took our content and uh, bought us. So I was approached by a recruiting company out of Chicago to open up a company for them in Los Angeles. And those were in the days of Career Mosaic, which is now Monster. Mm-hmm. So I've been, uh, you know, I was introduced to, to recruiting and through this online portal called Career Mosaic. And when they contacted me, I called my brother and I said, what is this? Read this. I don't know what this is. And he said, oh, God, do that. You'll be perfect. You'll make a million dollars. So I have a major in philosophy and a minor in computer science, and I'm published. So this is sort of what... um, fuse the two of those together is really, I didn't want to sit in front of a computer and code all day. I'm Mm -hmm. far more of a people person, which is how I got into recruiting. And I think it's how I found my, my talent, you know, identified myself with that. I became a master of it, um, simply because I love people and I love to build businesses. Well, it's a fascinating combination there of philosophy and computers. So it's actually not the first time that I've run across that combination. It seems to be, maybe it's still an outlier combination, but this idea of thinking about how the world works and then having a practical way to actually make it happen seems to be something that happens. Have you met very many other people that had that combination as well? Um, No, I I think that... I think it really, for me, it all came together when I took my first computer science class, which was a Unix coding class. And, you know, I got an F on my first test because I I just could not see what was going on. I could not comprehend it. So I went to my mentor back in my philosophy, in my philosophy, which was my major, and he said, well, this is just symbolic logic. So... Once I made that connection, I moved, you know, this F all the way up to a B, which there was no way I was going to get an A because I got an F on the first test. Mm -hmm. But um, that's where I made the connection because in in reality, the foundation of computer science is built off of the model of of symbolic logic. And then you, you know, move that into the realm of people, right, who build technology. So I, I've been around and sort of am one of the pioneers in re, of recruiting and technology because I look at them synonymously. You know, it's almost like we're trying to replicate, we, well, we are replicating what people do and how we think, and there's so many, you know, amazing things that are going on with technology and humanity uh, right. and the condition. So, you know, I think what I feel is so exciting is we're seeing a complete 
a complete innovation in the recruiting and HR realm right now. It's absolutely fascinating to watch and be a part of. Well, it's kind of amazing that you got some of that kind of insight through combining those two. And, you know, I, I'm just now remembering some insight that I had in my own computer science class. I mean, I only took a, I took a couple. I certainly didn't get a minor or a major in it. But the one thing that my very first teacher ever taught me was, when in doubt, check permissions. And right. that has actually served me very well, not only with computers, but with people. You know, when in doubt, go back and check permissions. You know, do I have permission to even talk to you about this right now? Are you even available to even think about these things? Will you even have this conversation or do this thing? And, and, and it, it, it's amazing how those things kind of cross over from what would seemingly be not a human thing, right? Computer science would not really have some sort of practical applications with people. But for me, it did. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to hear you talk about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's really just uh, it's very fascinating to see how things are working. So when you talk about permissions, you're going back and trying to get the, com- the permission. But I think in with technology, at least what I've seen is people are going to go ahead and take the risk, and they're going to ask for forgiveness later, right? Rather than permission, which I think has you know been a big constituent in how we've progressed as quickly as we've progressed because of the risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we're seeing, you know, this is all also leading us into this this change and this evolution that we're seeing with all the talk of the millennials and and fascinating to see what they're doing. And it's almost like looking back on history. I was talking to my mother the other night, and she said, oh, these kids are wearing so much makeup. And I said, but you did too, and so did I at that age, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're kind of, I think, you know, we're seeing things, you know, as we age and we mature. And, and we kind of have to look back at it and say, hey, I did the same thing. Okay, so what are they going to do now? And and I, it's amazing the change and the way life is changing and the perception of how we can make things better, you know, um, with these, with this generation. It's, I'm doing a, an exhibition on I am 23 now, and what does it mean to be 23? So I think, you know, being 23 is an arc in your story. Because you've come out of adolescence, you've either gone to college or gone to work, but you're at an arc where you're, you've kind of laid sort of the foundation of the landscape of your life, right? And now you're going to start to paint what your first direction is going to go and how long you're going to stay on a specific path or road, if you will. Mm-hmm. So um, just... Uh, I'm just in awe of of what is happening in the workplace, in talent acquisition, in business, in in the whole human condition in general. You know how technology has impacted us as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you do a lot of work as a coach and consultant as well. So, are there certain issues that you're seeing that maybe that kind of ties into what we're talking to here? that you tend to be helping companies solve? I think I, I'm typically brought in as a veteran where I'm, I'm a ramp-up person um, simply because I've built and owned and had my own companies 
personally my myself, right? And what I'm seeing now is, you know, there's there's a there's tends to be there's a war between the, the these uh, generations, if you will, where there doesn't need to be. And I think it's because there's there's an urgency by the millennials to continue to progress and move quickly and to get, you know, at the same time, they don't want to be seen as children. Mm-hmm. However, the generations before them still do, and because I think there's been, you know, a number of mistakes, but we, we learn by history, right? And we learn by the mistakes that were made in the past. And I think you're seeing with, you know, particularly companies like uh, Twitter, I would say, where, you know, they've been around for a very, very long time and extraordinarily successful. Um, however, they, they, they had a very, very young culture. And I think as a result of that, you know, while they progressed rapidly and, and became a massive success, what they lacked was the foundation of history because they were building history. They weren't taking anything from history. Mm-hmm. And there's been a whole change in the organization and recruiting where they've been reaching out and they're hiring veterans because we're going to bring that history and lay a more solid foundation for them. You know, and I think it's got to be the right kind of person, right, that is open to what this new generation wants or is trying to accomplish, right, with, you know, and learning from them. So everybody's learning from each other, not telling each other the way things are, right? Right. Um, so that I think is is where I come in, and you know, you know, at MD Insider, it's fabulous because you know we're all over the board. It's radically diverse, you know, in culture, in age, in thought, in you know, ethnicity, in this passion to change healthcare, and you know, there people are are colorblind, and they they you know what they're. What's happening now is we're crossing all of these these borders that have been built up by the past. And I think when I'm called in, why I'm called into these specific situations is to find a balance there and create a culture of people that can work across the boundaries, you know, of age, of of education level, of where you went to school, of, you know, what, lang- what your first language is, you know, um, and it's going to, I think it's going to be radically successful. And I think we're going to see more and more companies not just having, you know, a, a company culture that is, you know, if you're not 23, you're not a fit, right? And I, I've, I've seen this in companies I've built in the past, young companies. And, and, you know, you've never seen them on the map because they never made it. And I think one of the reasons they didn't is because they were stubborn and they want to you know i was at a company that would not take anybody over 27 and it's like what does that have to do with this you know we have to get talent and we need knowledge of somebody who's been there done that so it's really interesting i hope that answered your question yeah i mean we see a lot of those companies that kind of make some of those arbitrary decisions uh, typically have a very difficult time because like you said you need a balance i mean it's one thing if you're a 
kind of cutting edge, top of technology company. There's an element of youth that comes into that about understanding and knowing what's sort of as it should be. It should be as kind of hot and topical or whatever, but you don't have what you need to manage the company to be sophisticated in its growth and its planning and its execution and all of that. So I think you're right. We've seen sort of a change in what companies are trying to bring in. But one thing I've noticed is that I think the what the 23-year-old looked like 10 years ago is I feel like it's fairly different than what that 23-year-old looks like now because I'm I'm starting to see articles and things pop up about how millennials are getting fired disproportionately. I mean, they're just, they're coming in now and they don't want to be treated like children, yet they expect their employer to be their coach, to be the one to teach them everything. And that really wasn't how my generation was. I don't even think of how it was 10 years ago, that we didn't expect the employer to just teach me everything. I, I expected to have to go figure some of that out on my own. I mean, I, I loved it if they would help me. I loved mentorship, but didn't expect them to just sit one classroom setting after another and teach me everything. And that's a little bit of a different thing. So, but Yeah, and I, I think it also, you know, that will depend on where, you know, it, that's an individual thing as well. You know, I've seen candidates come through the door that are making it very clear that they're shopping us, right? Oh, yeah. This is where, you know, in some cases they fail. because In particular, we all know this in recruiting is, you know, my boss actually asked me this a couple of weeks ago, she said, why are so many people wanting this one person? And I said, well, he's got exactly the right credentials. He went to the right school. He's pedigree, right? Um, so, And he knows he's pedigree. And so he's going to leverage that. And I think in some cases the companies will put up with it depending on the level of maturity of of the culture of the company and there will be companies that will just say no now you're being you're stomping your feet and saying you will do this and you will do that so i think it really depends on how you what what the fabric of the landscape of, of that company looks like right yeah Well, and that goes into the applicant as well, because if they have gone and spent the time to get the education and to get the experience and to get all the things they need to be one of those top candidates, then they can dictate things a bit more because they are swimming in a sea full of people who can do a lot of things, you know, good instead of a few really things great. Yeah. They're, They're typically generalists, and that's what I generally look for is a generalist you know Mm -hmm. i want somebody who's going to be able to cross you know pick up a new uh, new technology with no problem right that they are open yeah however you know there comes with that you know it's again we have to go back to balance it's all about balancing it's a balancing act personally and professionally right and at 23 that's where you're marking your first road so what am i interested in you know, what What do I want to change, particularly mm-hmm. when you're in innovation and technology, right? It's like you're typically there because you want to make an impact. You want to change something, and you're passionate about that. So in me, I'm a technical recruiter by trade. You know, the people I ch- talk to want to have interesting technical challenges. So they're not there for 
the money, they're there to be challenged intellectually. Mm-hmm. Because in, in, I believe in their mind, they feel like that's going to advance them on the road. That's why they got into this, right? They want to continue to change. And I think we, the, the change is needed in this world we've created, right? And think we need to bring the world back into balance. Right, right. Well, one question I want to make sure we asked you, uh, it's one of our favorite questions to ask because we get such incredible variety and our listeners seem to really love the answers. Uh, and that is, what, what are you reading right now and can you tell us about it? What I'm reading now is the next 100 years. And I, I'm a history person, and I typically don't like to look at history from the, the lens of war. I, I look at look at history through a lens of art, right? It, mm-hmm. It's a little bit softer. But what, what this author has done is he takes you really back in history, and he's not postulating that this will happen in the next 100 years, but what is probable in the next 100 years, and who will be the next superpower, and why. Right. And it's all about culture. Right. Well, it sounds fascinating, and I'm sure... Uh, I, you know, for anybody, I'm not, I don't read history books. You know, this was recommended to me by one of my mentors, uh, Richard Spitz who was former head of, um, of Corn Ferry Digital. But it, it's, pro- you know, probably one of the only history books I've ever read and the best ever. For somebody who doesn't want to read a history book, this is a history book that you will be able to read and actually it's page turner. Well, it sounds like a great book to check out, and I know uh, our listeners will probably enjoy uh, picking that up, and make sure you tweet us and let us know how you liked it. Um, you, you know, we're coming here at the end here, Kay, and I uh, want to make sure uh, if people are interested in learning more about you or hiring you of your company, uh, what's the best way for them to find out more or reach out to you? Oh, just LinkedIn, always LinkedIn. Um, my email is at the bottom of my profile. And, you know, for me, I'm at a, if you look at the LinkedIn page, there's a quote in there by Picasso, um, and I advise them to read that. I'm in the place of, um, you know, I found what my talent is, and now I want to give it away. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, passionate about going in and adding value, not telling anybody how to do something, but, you know, creating a balance of what can I learn from you, and what can what can I add to to the equation to give you the foundation to grow that's solid? Well, that sounds fantastic, Ken. I really appreciate you being on the show and being a part of our program, and uh, we look forward to maybe having you come back at some point. We can get to all the other questions that we wanted to ask you, um, but we really appreciate you, you being a part of the show. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for the invite, and I'll be looking forward to the next podcast. All right, and uh, up next, after this quick commercial break, we'll have uh, Margie uh, Meacham from Chief Freedom Officer at uh, Learning to Go. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget, you can uh, check us out on uh, iTunes podcast, type in Talent Talk, or on iHeartRadio. You can also visit uh, talenttalkradio.com and 
any of those three places, you can listen to all our past episodes. And again, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter and let us know what you think and make any suggestions. But uh, let's go ahead and get to our second guest here. We have uh, Margie uh, Meacham. She's the Chief Freedom Officer at Learning to Go. Uh, Margie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing over there at your company. Okay, well, Learning to Go is an instructional design company. What we do is we take what the business or the organization needs to achieve and we apply neuroscience so that people can learn and enhance performance most effectively. And I've been doing this for about eight years now, and since it's my company, I decided I could have any title I wanted, and I picked two freedom offices. Well, that's great. So maybe we'll kind of start a little bit towards the beginning here. I know your career started in more like high-tech sales, and you eventually... You got promoted because of director of training, and then maybe you could talk about what it is about training and teaching and helping people you know, learn that has become a driving force behind you know, what you do now. Sure. And to, to talk uh, even further back, I first got interested in how people learn and how the brain works when I was a little girl in grade school because I was having a terrible time learning how to read. And my family had to help me to keep me from being held back. And it wasn't until I was in college I found out that I was dyslexic. So while I was learning how to be a teacher myself, I learned that there are these things called learning disabilities, and it has to do with the way your brain works. So that got me really interested in what can we do to help people learn and get better. Then I got my my degree in teaching. I'm ready to start my career. And, well, I found myself in sales instead because the best way to make a sale, particularly in something that's very complex, is to teach the buyer how it works and how it will benefit them. So that's how I built my successful track record, as you said, in high technology sales, which inevitably led me into training because they wanted me to teach other people to sell the way I did. And, you know, once I got back into that teaching kind of parole, I realized it was making those light bulbs turn on for other people that really got me excited. So that's how I ended up back in the learning profession. Well, that's a fascinating story. It always ends up that for some people who do something very well, they're usually then asked to manage and teach. And for some people, that is a fantastic path, and they really find you know something better. But for other people, that can be a nightmare, and that's not really what they were meant to do. <laughs> and so they oh, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah they, most of my colleagues would felt that way. They felt trapped in the training department where I really thrive. Yeah, and that's it's a great place uh, that for you in that that realm that you ended up there. So you were one of the first corporate trainers to use you know, video conferencing as a part of that e-learning tool. Uh, what led you to working with this medium initially and kind of moving away from traditional training models? Well, you know, I got really lucky because you mentioned I was working with a high tech company. One of their products was video conferencing. And so they sold the equipment and the bandwidth you needed to do it. And their vision was this would be great for business meetings. And I recognized the potential to use it for training. And so I had access to something that was really bleeding-edge technology way before most trainers did, you know, because it was already there and I could use it without adding to our our cost base. Mm -hmm. So I began using it for sales training, and it really took off in there. So how did it then kind of all fit together, or maybe how does it fit together now and how what you're doing now, or were they simply just kind of a stepping stone to get to where you are today? Maybe kind of talk about you know, the progression from that point to now. Sure. 
sure. Well, I was the director of training, and I started the, um, I don't know if this is okay to mention, the uh, company name. They're still around. They're a great company called Intertel, and I started Intertel University. And as part of that, I started talking with all kinds of vendors and different people that I could pull into the university. So I became really knowledgeable on the different platforms and the different technologies. And I began to realize also that those consultants made a lot more money than I did. So that's when I went out and started my own company. Mm-hmm. And as time has evolved in the learning space, we've gone from the old way we used to deliver video conferencing, which we tried to replicate more of a television show, but we didn't really have the lighting or the skilled speakers and the expertise to do that and to do that live. Now what you see a lot of is live learning online will be either something like this, it'll be a live broadcast, or there might be um, a video connection, and we'd call it virtual training, and people could see my screen as opposed to... um, me trying to make it feel like I'm right there physically with them. It's not always necessary for the learning to take place to have that kind of an experience. So I think we've gotten a lot smarter about the technology. So to answer your question, yeah, I still use it, and I use it a lot for my clients. But the way we deploy it is much simpler now, and the way we put it together is much faster. And the the experience for the person on the other end is usually much more consistent. Mm -hmm. So you... you now I've kind of taken all that knowledge and now you're working with a lot of different companies and designing their learning experiences for them. Do you find there are maybe some important aspects that really go into a successful learning and training program that a company needs? I mean, sometimes it's, you know, at the management level, employee level, or there's a leadership component. Maybe there's something else. Do you kind of have some key things that you see them doing successfully? Yeah, I think there's one thing that every business needs, and that is they need to make sure they're preparing their employers, their employees, rather, not just for today, but for the future. Things are changing so rapidly in technology and in business and globalization business that you can't predict what skills your folks are going to need two years from now. What you can do is make sure that you've taught them how to think so that they can analyze the situation, and you've taught them how to learn. So we spend a lot of time with our clients on what we call learning to learn. We actually teach people how to become better at extracting as much as they can out of a training course. That way, my clients spend less on training because we do it much more efficiently. And absolutely everyone at any level of business, really at any age, the younger you are, the even more critical it's going to be because of the world you're going to face in 10, 20, 30 years. We all need to learn better, and that's where the neuroscience comes in. Well, I really notice that as being a common thread in people who are sort of identified as very good teachers, at whatever level they are. I think they spend a good portion of their day and every lesson that they're doing reinforcing or teaching their students how to learn how to find the information, how to critically break it down, and how to think about it in a way in which that you know is replicatable when they're not standing there in front of the teacher. Yeah. And that's just as as important as whether or not I think that you that you've learned the information at that moment. But how can I go find that out for myself and critically break it down and make sure I have the right information and move forward, as opposed to just I think there's a huge maybe that's you know, one of the huge problems in our society is people don't probably know how to learn something, and so therefore they avoid it, they don't do it, and there's a lack of that progress on an individual level. Do, do you agree with that? 
oh, yeah, yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head. And, you know, it's um, it's not only that we have to teach them how to learn, but we have to make them more aware of how their brain really works. Mm-hmm. So we've got all this great information coming out now from neuroscience. Only in the last 10 years or so have we really been able to watch the brain while it works, so that's why now you're hearing so much about it. And so when you know, for example, that your brain has to have something repeated many times before it moves into um, long-term memory, then you'll realize how much you have to study if you really want to master something. Whereas learning how to find something is a little bit different. You have to train your brain to remember the breadcrumbs to get you back to the information. So the more you know about how your brain works, the better a learner you become. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've written some some great books, uh, and you have one coming out as well uh, later this year around this topic of neuroscience. Um, it's a topic we've we've hit a few times here on the show, and everyone approaches it a little bit differently and how how technical or not technical they get, or even with scientific terms. But maybe you could sum up a little bit in a nutshell. You know, if someone is looking at opening up one of your books, what you know, what what types of things are you going to be talking about or exposing them to or getting them to think about? Well, great question. I think what they're going to find first is it's written in plain English. When I have to use a scientific term, I uh, I do so that I can be accurate, and I always provide my references. So if you want to go back to the source data, you can look at it. But I know that what most people want is they want me to boil it down for them. So I explain things in plain English, and I make sure I tell you what it means to you, how you can apply it. So my first book, Brain Matters, How to Help Anyone Learn Anything Using Neuroscience, is just that. It's a series of short one- or two-page essays about some aspect of the brain that we've just discovered that you can apply, like, Mm -hmm. for example, mirror neurons. And you've probably had folks on the show talking about that. When you watch me do something, your brain responds just as though you were doing it yourself, and that's what those mirror neurons are doing. So we can use that to speed up the process of learning a new skill or um, sharing expertise. If we understand that, we build the training in the right way. So one of the things in that book is a practical outline of how you can take advantage of mirror neurons. And I've got all about 100 of those tips in that first book. Now, my second book that you mentioned is coming out later this year I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of learning. And so what I picked was the subject of genius. What makes somebody really exceptional? And I found a huge surprise. Most geniuses made themselves geniuses. To some extent, they made a choice very early in life and worked on their brains and developed habits. So my book, The Genius Button, How to Unleash Your Hidden Genius, is going to talk about that. And I'm really excited about this because I think tied with what we just talked about, you have to speed up your learning. You have to know how to do that. This next book is going to give you practical tips on how to do that. And do you see there's a component to this that is not only what they do to improve themselves, but we have to kind of deal with the mindsets that people have as well? Because if they don't, yeah, right. they don't believe that they can get smarter, that they can be a genius or, or what have you, they're kind of stuck, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, and that is another uh, one of those essays that I wrote in the first book, In Brain Matters. Um, Angela Duckworth is a brilliant woman who's done a lot of TED Talks, and she started getting us all talking about this concept of, she calls it grit. 
and it's belief in yourself and commitment to do better. And the people who don't let adversity knock them down, the people who say, I can get better at this, I can learn this, it doesn't matter what their IQ is, they're the ones who end up on top. And so she's been encouraging school teachers, parents, leaders, office managers, and even individuals that you need to develop grit. And I agree with her. Yeah, I mean, I kind of really got formally introduced to some of those concepts through that book, Mindset, by uh, Dr. Carol Dweck. And that really gave me a pretty good understanding, although it wasn't, I don't know if I'm particularly prepared to help those who have a really bad case of, I, I can't have more of a fixed mindset that I can't change. But it's certainly you can identify people and employees um, that you can surround yourself with people. If, if you're in that growth mindset, if you want to get better and you want to work at things and you're willing to make mistakes and learn from them, there's a group of people out there that are very much already in that mindset. And it's a lot easier, I find, a lot easier to work with them and to get things done with them than it is those that believe things just are the way they are and then nothing's ever going to change. Yeah, that's right. It's like finding your tribe, right, Chris? Yeah. Find the group you're going to be most comfortable with that are going to nurture you and not hold you back. And, you know, you talked about the fixed mindset. Uh, mindset and the thing that's really remarkable that's coming out of all of this one of the first things that come out of neuroscience is your mind is not fixed it's constantly changing you and I right now are rewiring our brains because of this conversation we're going to think about things a little differently and see the world a little differently because of this interchange and so is everybody who's listening so it's never too late and that's the big big Um, learning for all of us is even if you think that you can't change something might happen in your life that reroutes one of those neural pathways and suddenly you start to change well i'm just going to be looking for that button that turns me into a genius because you said there's some there's one somewhere right when it's ready (laughs) well you know one of our favorite questions to ask and um, hopefully you have a great answer for this is what are you reading right now and can you tell us about that book yeah, well, I'm uh, reading a book that's been out for a few years. It's called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And the reason I'm reading it has to do with my book that's coming out about the genius button and trying to uh, make sure that I'm covering all my bases. So this is a book by Michael Gelp, G-E-L-P, and it's called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And he walks through different ways that Leonardo was just, He lived at a time when it was possible for one man to be deeply knowledgeable about just about every discipline in the world. So he was a painter. He was a sculptor. He was a writer. He uh, was an amazing chef, which is something a lot of folks don't know about him. He was considered one of the greatest political minds of his day. And he moved so seamlessly between those uh, different skills, he didn't really even think of them as different Mm-hmm. He kept copious notes, and we learn a lot from his notebooks. I had the pleasure of going, in fact, to a, um, a display of some of his notebooks. And to think that you were looking at a piece of paper with ink, and that this man so long ago touched it and put those thoughts on that paper, it was really just sent chills through my, my whole body to look at it like that. And so I'm really having fun with this book. Well, that sounds like a great book. And I know, I think at least one other guest has mentioned that one before, and he's a certainly fascinating uh, 
person in history that uh, there must be volumes and volumes that we can learn from him. And specifically to your kind of focus, to his process, to the way in which he learned, the way in which he approached things. I'm sure that there's some great applications there in our own lives and on, on how we can uh, improve and get better and, and hopefully find that, that genius button as well. Yeah. And you know, Chris, if I could, I'd like to give you another book that I just picked up. Sure. And that's Leading from the Heart by Mark Crowley. And what I love about this book is we've discovered through studying the brain how important our emotions are to learning and changing behavior. And yet in business, we're often told to leave our emotions at the door. And Mark has realized that everything is emotional underneath. Mm -hmm. And so a good leader figures that out and draws on it rather than trying to push it away or box it up. So I think that's also going to be a great read. I've, I've sat and had a discussion about you know, negotiation settings, that people make their decisions based on emotions. They then immediately try to validate them with objective information and, and facts and figures to, to you know, really justify that emotion. But it's an emotional decision that causes them to make that. And I've had people really argue with me about that. And in the end, they usually end up coming back, maybe years later, and they've sort of tested this out and come back to the conclusion that, yeah, it really was, it is emotional, or they, they realize it themselves that they're making those emotional decisions. They feel safe, it feels right, it, you know, it feels bad, it, it feels good, whatever those, those things are. And then we have those intellectual pieces. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that, because right. your brain is, can emote faster than you can think. So... It will size up, um, you know, and, and the great book Blink was all about that, too. So if you're acting on emotion, there probably are facts that led up to that emotional reaction in your brain. It's just that the emotion is something we become conscious of first. It's the first thing that happens. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you having you on the show here today, Margie, and we learned a lot, and it's always a fascinating topic to, to get into the world of, of neuroscience and how the brain works and training, and you did a great job of not uh, getting too scientific for us, uh, not to lose anybody here on, on malignums and all those different terms that we sometimes hear on, on, on the show that people bring up. But uh, if people are interested in learning more about your company, maybe they want you to, to help them with their own training and learning process at their company, what's, what's the best way for them to reach out and get a hold of you? I'd say they should go to our website. It's learningtogo.info, and to go is spelled out, T-O-G-O. So learningtogo.info, and there's plenty of places there to a contact button, places to learn about me. And also check out our conference. We're doing an online conference November 10th and 11th, and we'll be focusing on how to bring out your inner genius during the entire conference. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm sure people would love to give that, give that a whirl and check out your website, and uh, hopefully you can help a few of them out because uh, it looks like you've got a, a great program, a great thing running, and a lot of uh, experience in this role as well and uh, can really help people change their mindsets and their how they learn within companies. Thanks. Yeah, so I know we didn't get to everything today, so we'd love to have you come back at some point, but it was really a, a, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Chris. I enjoy it. I'll come back after I have my book done. How's that? Sounds great. So uh, thank you again to uh, Margie and uh, Kay for uh, being on our show today. You can tune in at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time next week. Uh, let's see, that would be Tuesday, August 18th. My guest will be uh, Kelly Basako, Director of Human Resources at Parco, Inc., and Lori Almeida. She's a Chief Talent Officer at Siegel Gale. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. 
You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show brought to you by People G2.